Welcome to the CityDAO podcast. I'm your host, Eric Gilbert Williams. CityDAO is exploring decentralized asset ownership on chain, starting with a simple piece of land purchased in Wyoming during 2021. Each parcel of land becomes an NFT that can be owned collectively by the DAO or by individuals just like you and me. CityDAO is a DAO. In other words, it's a decentralized autonomous organization, meaning that land governance, treasury, and other things, including this show you're listening to right now, are all managed by the community. Check out the FAQ at citydao.io to learn more, or check out the CityDAO Discord channel to get all the latest updates. Now let's get started with the show. With us here today on the CityDAO pod is yet another mover, a shaker, one of the DAOs with the biggest DAO buzz, rustling up all the sleeping nostalgia that a DAO could possibly muster. Tessa Fila, the founder of Blockbuster DAO, is here on the CityDAO pod. And not only Tessa Fila, we also have from day one, the lead dev, Guggs, who is also coincidentally a CityDAO contributor, citizen, and very active in the community guilds, well, multiple guilds and multiple channels. If you haven't checked out the discords for CityDAO, definitely do that. You'll see Guggs in there. So we kind of got a double hitter here today on the CityDAO pod, which I'm super stoked about. And I'm equally stoked about this project overall with Blockbuster DAO. I'm excited about the DAO. I've been sort of following it and participating lightly since day one, even though I'm more of a reader than a participant right now. I'm just waiting for the moment. I'm still actually searching for my old original Blockbuster card. I think it does still exist and I, I just need it now. <laughs> like everyone is looking for that. I'm also really excited to see, I think a lot of people are excited to see one of our old favorite brands come back to life with a new foundation, with new leadership, with decentralized leadership in my favorite space, that of decentralization and Web3. So like many people, I would go to Blockbuster with my mom for movie nights. We'd pick out our favorite VHS and come home, you know, make some homemade popcorn, enjoy the show. And now the brand is coming back. So Tessa and Guggs, thanks for taking the time to come on the show here. Everyone here at CityDAO. I mean, it almost sounds weird to say that because Guggs, you're a part of CityDAO, but <laughs> everyone in CityDAO, we appreciate the time you're taking to come out here. How are you guys doing? Very well. Thank you. Yeah. Thanks for having us. I'm so excited to chat. Yeah. And I've been waiting for this sort of all week kind of begin getting nervous and excited and get my, my questions organized. And I think the right place to start is the simplest place to start. And that's in your own words, what is Blockbuster DAO? There's tons of articles about it, but let, maybe let's hear it in your own words. Yeah. So I, I think it's definitely twofold. One being, I think is the more obvious one is kind of this trend in the world today about reviving old IP. And I think Blockbuster is probably one of the more nostalgic, more memorable 90s, 2000s brands that doesn't exist today. And I think a lot of us look back on it. And funny enough, the consumer sentiment for Blockbuster at the time was terrible when they were going out of business. They were just really lacking a good profile in the consumer market. And then after they go out of business, everything skyrockets and they start interviewing people, having like public consumer sentiment surveys and Everybody's just crazy about Blockbuster and wishing that there was some way that we could go back or see it again in some capacity. A lot of people started missing it. So I think that trend is like a lot of other older brands. And so for us, one of our goals is to be able to bring back this nostalgic IP. But at the same time, Blockbuster DAO, I think, does something very novel and different that other acquisitions DAOs might do where instead of just buying something and then figuring out what will happen, like say Spice DAO, you buy this manuscript and then we're going to figure out how to make an animated series or Constitution DAO, we're going to buy a Constitution and then we're going to figure out what to do with it. In our case, we know that there's a missing piece in the film market, in the media market for distribution and a really good customer experience. And so our goal is to not only revive the Blockbuster brand, but be able to build a platform that is able to take media and content the way we share and consume media and content to the next level in Web3. And one thing that struck me when I was reading, I think it was a a branding document that you guys put out. Uh, I'm kind of jumping ahead here, but I think it's super related to what is Blockbuster DAO and and what is it trying to accomplish. And this branding document that you put out, or sorry, sorry, the the roadmap document, you had this 20-year roadmap that encompassed I mean, a week in crypto is a year in the real world. Totally. (laughs) I don't think I've ever seen a 20-year roadmap in the Web3 world ever. This is probably the first time. I mean, maybe I'm crazy there, and I probably am, but you're going way out with this one. It's interesting you brought that up because I think that was one of our first really big accomplishments as a DAO, and it was a brand sprint led by a consultant from Bankless. 
what would in a normal startup environment, a brand sprint would dictate those exact things, five, 10, 20 year roadmap, mission statement, vision statement, personality of the brand, really getting down to the nuts and bolts of what we're about and what we want to do. But we decided to do that with our entire DAO and introduce everybody into that process and make sure that we were really gathering everyone's feedback. So that 5, 10, 20 year roadmap that we posted was the combination of 800 plus participants in the branding sprint. And they went through different stages. And a lot of those were short answer questions or long form questions that we had to condense and dedupe and gather all that information and find where the most popular choices were to have those answers. And so I think that process was super enlightening for all of us to be able to see how aligned our community really is and why we all came into Blockbuster DAO. It's just been a great document to have, to be able to build on, to move forward with. And I think we have 20-year roadmaps. I mean, that's how most companies should be thinking. But for some reason in Web3, everybody thinks very short-term, immediate satisfaction, instant gratification. Everybody's thinking like, what's happening in the next three months? Because everything moves so fast. But really, long-term growth is the most sustainable kind of growth. Yeah. And I'll just add to that. Like, I think we took the long-term vision and and used it to build our plan of action, which is 95% together now. And it was a really great way to work. As Tospiel just said, it's like getting the broad vision of the community and then using that to form a concrete product proposition was incredibly helpful. And as we speak, I'm buzzing so hard about what our actual product is going to be, because I think it's pretty revolutionary. And yeah, excited to be able to share that as soon as practicable. One of the things that strikes me about following and reading the discussions in the Blockbuster DAO is that you know you guys haven't actually launched an NFT drop or done a token raise or done a capital raise of any sort at all. You're seemingly from the outside focused entirely on community building and on relationship building and on sorting out a lot of these details before actually raising money. And I think it's such a hot subject right now in the DAO world, or I mean, in crypto in general, there's projects out there that say, hey, let's raise a bunch of money so that we can build our roadmap, right? And they're shamelessly just looking to raise capital and hoping that people trust that the rest is going to come later. Whereas you have this opposite approach, you could almost say two camps of thought, where you're focusing on the community, you're focusing on these details, you're focusing on the roadmap and the vision before going for a raise. I wonder if you wanted to add some comments to that. Yeah, I think we're both vigorously nodding our heads behind our screens right now. Like, <laughs> yes. I, I, <laughs> I'll just say from my perspective, and I know Tasso shares this perspective, we just want to approach it a little differently. Like we want to ride the Web3 wave and the excitement about this space, but that's not the end. Our end here is not to like drop an NFT and make a couple million dollars, which we could probably do. Like our end is a 20-year vision for what the future of streaming and content and frankly, creator ownership and creator control and creator organic marketing, like what that all can look like. That's why we're here. So we're not going to raise a dime until we think we can execute on that plan. Gotcha. Yeah. And when I read the roadmap, there's a tone that you have to the five, the 10 and the 20 year, the tone that describes what your goals and and what your targets are, it's already achieved. It's like you're embodying the reality of it. It's like you're almost fast forwarding in those five, 10, 20 years and making a statement going backwards in time that says, this is what we've accomplished at year five, year 10, year 20. And that's a subtle but significant difference than saying, we aspire to fill in the blank in five years. It's one thing to say that versus we have achieved this and now we're building on the next steps. It's a very different attitude and energy that it harnesses into. Totally. I think when you do publish documents as an organization, and I think people forget about this is that tone or like the voice that you, you know, which is a basically that that document consists of a lot of affirmations that this is what we see as the vision. And so I like to think that that tone of voice is just enough to help people really picture it in their minds a specific way or just kind of follow along with us. Definitely. Also, studies have already been done. And we read a big study that was done by this group, Mighty Networks, or was commissioned by them. So it definitely has a bias to him, say that out loud. But like, it's pretty clear to us where the idea of the indie creator is going. And it's pretty clear that people are sick of giving 35% of their commission to YouTube and 50% of their subscription revenue to Twitch. 
So that affirmative tone is because not only is it clear to us via studies, like we have a discord of many thousands of people that believe in it. And we've been to events and we've talked to these filmmakers and content creators. And so there's just no question in our minds that the hunger for something different is there. It's just upon us to like execute on the specific vision, which is what we're working on every day right now. Gotcha. Now, when I think about the concept of Blockbuster Dow buying the brand Blockbuster. I mean, there's so much anchoring on this concept of buying Blockbuster. There's leverage, there's emotions, there's decade of history and or more in some cases of people that have a, a positive association with the brand. And I get this visual, and this ties back into building the community versus just going right in and diving full speed. There's obviously there's benefits to diving in full speed. I mean, City Dow did that, you know, we got our land right away, got some momentum, and it was a very good thing to do that very, very quickly. Yet City Dow also was taking some precautions and bought a very small, simple piece of land. So it's not going to be complicated in the context of buying a block in downtown Manhattan, for example, has different complications. There's this old analogy of the kid that goes to the ice cream shop and wants the triple scoop ice cream. And they're just really excited. They want the ice cream and they, and they finally get the triple scoop ice cream, but it's too big. They don't know what to do with it. They can't eat it. They're not ready for it. They're just not ready. And you guys, I'd imagine, could probably have raised enough capital to just go and maybe put in formal offers and possibly even, I'm just speculating here, but maybe have bought the brand already, possibly. And maybe that's not true, but from the outside looking in, it seems like that's a non-zero probability. And you guys have chosen not to. And part of the excitement, I think, that a lot of people feel is getting that brand and physically buying it and owning it. But that's the excitement level of the equation. The real nuts and bolts comes into what are we going to do with it? And I think that that's what your core focus has been for months now and continuing. Is that right? For sure. I think there's a few other examples out there where I think they have shown exactly what not to do in terms of this kind of dilemma. It's basically an acquisitions company. You see those all the time in the regular market. And for example, another very close example would be Radio Shack, which was bought by Ty Lopez's SPAC, which I can't remember off the top of my head. But in that case, he and his group have bought a bunch of old IP. I think it even includes like Circuit City, Radio Shack, stuff like that. And they don't really have any purpose for it, right? They bought Radio Shack. And I think even today or before they launched their quote unquote platform, I'm not exactly sure what it is. They said, we're not exactly sure where to bring Radio Shack into Web3, but we're going to start with this token swap app. And to me, that, that just showed... No wonder people aren't attracted to this. People are tweeting about how it's dumb and he's pushing Radio Shack into people's faces because there's no intrinsic value tied to the extrinsic value, right? You need both. You need intrinsic and extrinsic. Like people who might feel good about Radio Shack aren't going to participate if there's no extrinsic value of really being part of something or making money off of something or being involved and with the hope of growing with it. For us, we have Blockbuster which is definitely comes with a ton of intrinsic value. But that extrinsic value, that platform, that's really where people will get value over time. And if you were to own a part of Blockbuster in the future, right, you would want value underneath that. You wouldn't want to just own the IP because to be honest, the IP isn't worth anything unless there's some sort of product or asset or a growth mechanism underneath it. it the, the brand's not going to grow over time. And if anything, a brand especially an outdated brand, is actually losing value over time the longer it doesn't have a public offering product of any kind. And if I was to draw some parallels and some comparisons, there's a lot of different ways to see a dream realized and manifested. And of course, CityDAO went really quickly in, get some land, sort it out, figure it out, build the community, and then get ready for the next bigger piece that's going to be more substantial. Krauss for example, is focused on building credibility as their primary focus right now to show that they're able to handle, you know, an NBA brand and use that as a next step. And what would you describe as the immediate priorities right now? I mean, I, I've read them in the in the rewind updates, but just for other people that are listening, what are the immediate priorities? Like, I, th I think that you're negotiating right now potentially with what purchase price could be. But that's a separate subject, of course, then what is Blockbuster DAO going to do? You mentioned streaming a few times and content ownership. I wonder if you could just put a little more spotlight onto what the top priorities are over the next six months here with Blockbuster DAO. Yeah, I'd say like first and foremost, we're just trying to figure out if there's a deal to be made on the brand front. And I can say like we are well into discussions with Dish and the right people over there. And 
they're wonderful and it's been wonderful. And we'll just see if there's a deal to be made. I think that's number one. One of the promises that we made to the community from the outset was that if there's not a deal to be made, we absolutely intend to carry forward the vision. And that was the piece that personally I was a bit worried about just because it felt like at the beginning, so much was wrapped around the meme of the brand acquisition. But I can confidently say now, I'm not going to say the true value because there is a lot of value in the brand name itself, but like the underlying value, the value of the product we want to create and the community that we've already formed is so strong on its own that we very clearly see the path forward with or without the brand. But number one is to figure out if there's a deal to be made because certain things change if there is versus if there isn't. And unfortunately, that is a waiting game because we're dealing with a Fortune 800 company and these things don't move incredibly quickly. But I will say like we're, like I said, we've had very productive conversations and everything seems to be moving for the moment in the right direction on that front. I think a lot of people would love to hear a bit about your origins story. And I'm somehow assuming that you probably didn't just wake up one day fully inspired and go, boom, let's go buy Blockbuster right now, boom, and start the community and, and go, go, go. Somehow I feel like there's a story historically that built up towards this moment, and I have no idea actually what it is. I wonder if you guys could share each of your background stories and leading up to this. Well, it's funny. I, I feel like in retrospect, it sort of feels like it just happened all of a sudden, but it takes a while to really let it sink in. Like why, for instance, when I wrote that tweet, there were times where I had to really think about my past and think about like why I think this really does mean a lot to me that I maybe wasn't conscious of at the time. And I definitely have a, a past in media and I've worked as, as a spec screenwriter. I did some short films out of college and I really wanted to be a filmmaker. And I just found it so hard and painstaking to enter the industry. It was excruciating. It was a lot of trying to network and even with the right networking. I had lots of doubts about myself and what was possible. And I took a corporate job and I stayed away from the film industry for quite a while. And I worked in SaaS where I was working with a lot of tech companies like IBM and Microsoft. And it was far from creative, but I found a lot of passion in being able to help these, these corporations talk to each other, create content together, create partnerships together. And over time, I found myself still being drawn to the creative realm. And I kept coming back and coming back. And no matter where I came back into that love for storytelling, I always found it incredibly difficult to push through that first, second, third wall. Even when I had people interested in a pilot I wrote, it was still so painstaking to get through that process. And finally, I said, screw it. Something needs to change. And I was so inspired by what Constitution Dow did that I thought there has to be a way to utilize that energy, that power that people have to come together to finance things and do so for creators like I used to be, or I still feel like I am at times, but for filmmakers, creators, writers, content creators, to be able to have that equitable path forward. And so they don't have to grind through TikTok to get noticed by an algorithm. And they don't have to suffer under excruciating job conditions in YouTube, because I've seen that firsthand from my partner who it can be pretty wild what these YouTubers go through and what they put people on their teams through to assumedly get to the top. So I think I felt like there was really a need for storytellers to have a better path forward. And that aligned with so many of the ideas at the time in December last year of DAOs and acquisition DAOs to just mesh together. And then the rest is history. One tweet, on Christmas Day. And then I woke up the next day with about six to 7,000 followers. It felt like it was Christmas again, because it was just amazing to see the response and the alignment of so many different kinds of people who felt the same way. Do you think that a DAO that doesn't, or a DAO idea that doesn't get 7,000 followers on day one is equally valid to one that does? And where's the line between pushing on an idea that just doesn't have legs? Totally. Well, you know, what's funny is actually I had a DAO concept that I was trying to pitch before Blockbuster and it was the choose your own adventure web three experience. And I had no traction. It was so hard to pitch. Like I, I think I talked to, it was like Omen Oasis, which was like an HP company and they were kind of interested, but it was so hard to pitch and really push forward. And I think that was because we're in a, a time right now where just like organic marketing can help you a lot. And, you know, I come from a marketing background, so I really had to rethink how I was marketing my ideas and I had to really simplify into what I think became a very simplistic 
but very story-driven thesis on what Blockbuster could be, what Blockbuster DAO could be, what the future of film can be. But that said, that doesn't make any other idea more or less like traction isn't necessarily an indicator of it being a good or a bad idea. I mean, especially in Web3, we should all know that the most painful rug pulls sometimes have the most traction or the most people that are excited about them. And they could even be well-meaning, but there's a flaw in the contract or something along those lines. So if anything, being able to scale slowly is truly a gift that we didn't have because scaling really fast can also be very detrimental to making mistakes, getting the wrong people on board because you need hands on deck right away to be able to like mitigate and manage and you're not taking your time to really build a, a strong core team, those things can be pain points of scaling really fast. So if anything, there are times where I am jealous of the groups that are able to really take their time, breathe, and really focus on getting their story straight rather than the reverse and having this huge influx of media and attention and then having to like essentially focus down through all that it can be difficult too. So I think it's just different circumstances. To my understanding and observations, being a founder of a DAO is very similar to just being the founder of a startup and going through the entrepreneurial roller coaster and effort that's required in a regular startup. Would you say that's generally accurate? For sure. Before I started this, I was a startup founder for a vegan e-commerce brand. In my eyes, we felt like we were a very strong, lean group that was able to do a lot with so little. We were very self-funded, very motivated to release this really cool offering of vegan products, but it was so difficult and so hard. And I think all of the pain points that I felt in that process, I feel similarly, I think now. So I don't think it's a matter of being a startup founder, a DAO founder, any kind of founder. It is difficult to manage the same problems, right? They're all a lot of the same problems. Just your product's either a protocol or it's a physical grocery item. Like it doesn't matter that, that a lot of the problems have to do with infrastructure and finding the right people to help you make it happen and using vendors, sometimes choosing the wrong vendors. All those things happen and, and are a lot of the same stresses. And so definitely helps to be able to come into the space, even if your background is in something complex and different from Web3, I think a lot of the problems are similar. And it just takes a lot of communication, especially in a DAO. It takes a lot of communication problem solving. And so now that we've established that framework, the concept that we hear a lot, whether it's by Y Combinator or by other thought leaders, is as an entrepreneur, to build something that people want. And there's no more Christmas miracle about validation of what people want than having, like you had 7,000 followers on day one. That's a very clear indicator on all objective levels that people want this, or they're at least curious enough to get you to the first few steps. And other people don't have that. And maybe we could draw a parallel to the late and great Steve Jobs and his reality distortion field that people said that he had. And he would just will something into existence and will a different view on a situation and people would just comply. Where do you think, like other people that are starting DAOs right now or maybe struggling with their own vision, I wondered if you could share your own personal thought on when does it make sense to drive on a vision no matter what versus when is it a clear indicator that there just isn't any product market fit or there just isn't enough demand for this kind of concept? I mean, to me, I'll just say my day job is, is that of a producer, like I'm a television and film producer. And so I've spent most of my life creating things that I hope people will want. And the most beautiful thing about being a part of this blockbuster movement is at this moment, I can say we haven't needed to do any of that because the synergy has been incredible. It's like all the way down to the product that we now know pretty much exactly what we want to build. And we're going to hopefully be able to share that sometime soon. That comes from the brand sprint. It comes from these big principles that we all talked about in the Discord for months and that we wrote in that white paper. So like it's all born of what we know everybody, at least in this community, which is 7,000 plus Discord users and 16,000 plus Twitter followers at the moment, like it's all born from what we know that everybody wants. And so like, I'll just say personally, it's such a breath of fresh air having been a person who all my life, the game of producing television and film, especially on the higher end, is like having a vision in a black box and working toward creating that vision, developing a script, pulling in talent, pulling in a director. Sometimes that takes 18 months. Sometimes it takes longer. And then 
you hope that the network wants to buy it. And then you're going to take another two years to make the whole thing for tens of millions of dollars. And then you hope that somebody wants to watch it. It's just like all of this work in a black box and hoping and hoping and hoping. And like, we have exactly the opposite thing here. So I know the question you asked is like, where's the push and pull to this moment? We've had to be smart about how we're going to put the product together, but like we haven't had to be these Steve Jobs-esque mavericks where we're saying, you may not say you want this, but trust me, you do. Like we just haven't had to go there yet. And it's been wonderful, I think. I think sometimes with validation, like obviously it's a total guessing game, but you just have to be careful when you're messing with Schrodinger's cat, right? And Schrodinger's cat, like if you don't look in the box, it's it's dead and alive at the same time, right? Like it's better to just like look in the box. And sometimes I think occasionally people will push aside information and data because they're scared that maybe their product or their idea might not be validated. So I, I do think there's a level in this space for any founder that is looking at pushing further on their idea, I think validation can be found in all sorts of different ways. You just have to, I think, be willing to pivot or change if it doesn't necessarily fit with your idea, which we've already had to do, I think, multiple times where we thought we had the physical vision of the product, but then we have to pivot and we find information. We go, okay, well, let's think about that. And I think that is a skill set that's definitely needed in this space where nothing's for granted and you could go a billion different ways with your product or your DAO. Yeah, like I'm not going to lie. I came to this on day one and I was like, I've spent my whole career, I work with a high level showrunner who has really done some awesome things in traditional television for like creator ownership. And so I've kind of spent my whole career thinking about that. And I came to Blockbuster Dow on day one and really to the Web3 space in general going like, how can we make super high end shit, but like do it in a different way and have the creators own everything and blah, blah, blah. And when Blockbuster Dow started, like we had this really cool group of Hollywood people who had the same thoughts and we were talking about content strategy and all these different things. And we did this brand sprint and I have to give Tasa credit for like pushing on the data that we collected and saying, let's pay attention to what these people are asking for. Because just by and large, we weren't finding a bunch of high-end filmmakers and screenwriters wanting another way to, to finance their projects. Like, and that's going to happen. But like within our community, we were finding a lot of sort of smaller indie creators that couldn't build 100,000 subscribers on YouTube in order to be able to monetize their work. So at least I personally, and some of the folks in the group, like we did a major pivot. And the other thing is that like Blockbuster, the name itself is very associated with literally a Blockbuster means a gigantic money-making movie, right? And so like we had to really ask ourselves, what are the values that came along with Blockbuster, the store and the community experience and these sorts of things? And like, how does that translate to Web3? How does that translate to a creator experience that is a bit smaller and that's not about these gigantic Steven Spielberg movies. So I'm just sort of like supporting what Tasofila just said. It's like, we've already done a couple major pivots, at least I have in my own mind, as to what this should be based on the community response. And I'm proud of us for having been able to do that. I'd even add on that. I think the other thing that has helped us that I think I see a lot of other people in the space not doing is we kind of reduce the scope of maybe our roadmap, but just like, even though we're thinking 20 years down the line, we're also not saying, oh, when we came to the space and even the original tweet, it was a bit broad and it said, we're going to make movies and we're going to publish movies and we're going to enter the metaverse and we're going to do all these things. And a lot of projects do that. And over time, it became very obvious that those things can be so limiting to that validation process of finding what, where really can we create value right away? Where can we enter the market and have a really sleek, shining MVP, right? And I think we finally got into that point. And that was through a lot of reducing the extra fat that we see in these Web3 projects where we make the joke all the time that on everybody's roadmap for an NFT project is a play to earn a metaverse game. Right. And it's almost funny how people are just throwing in items or ideas, but aren't really ready to even execute on those. So it just makes a lot of sense to really reduce and find that core value or that core validation for something and really focus there because that will scale much faster than trying to attack a bunch of different problems to cover more ground. Okay. Let's talk about something that's super hot right now. Today is May 5th, 2022. And over the last couple of months, 
Netflix has just had their stock value obliterated. And there's been a dialogue and sort of a saying inside Blockbuster Data that I saw several times is that Netflix has gone unchecked for too long, that it's time for decentralization to come and introduce a new solution that gives full ownership and proper rewards to content creators. And there's this sort of, whether it's direct or indirect or subtle or unsubtle attack on the concept of top-down hierarchy, Netflix as the prime example. And not only has Netflix stock value just been obliterated, but I mean, today, May 5th, we're looking at a really serious hit in the tech industry and, and the stock market in general. And I'm wondering what sort of effect, if any, did that have on your community recently? What are you dealing with on this subject right now? To be honest, I think most of the Netflix, I guess you could call it drama. That's a good word for it. <laughs> yeah, because it is a lot of drama. And also it's easy to kind of meme Netflix for being, I don't know, the villain now which I don't think is, is really true. But I think what I see when I look at the data and the falling subscriptions is that the market is really opening up to a lot of different competitors. But also, I think we're seeing that there could be some changes in terms of how we pay or watch content. There was a study recently that said over 40% of consumers would actually not mind watching advertising as opposed to maybe a decade ago. That was definitely not the case. And subscription as a service content was really the be all end all. And I think people are, are getting a bit sick of the stagnant state of these products. And I think competition is rising, which I think is a good thing. And if you look at Netflix's current market cap, it's finally now below Disney, which you'd think would actually be the case given that Disney is this massive longstanding corporation at like, I think it's like 200 billion. And Netflix for the longest time was that three, 400 billion market cap, which as a valuation seems a bit steep in comparison. So I think now where they're at is actually a very reasonable price given the state of increased competition and also just their offering being a very singular product. Did the hits on the stock price for Netflix come across as a validation of the initiative and the vision that you're pushing forward here? Or was it sort of, you didn't give much thought to it? I'm, I'm curious if there was an effect on that front. It's funny. I talked with my colleague who's the head of business affairs of my company for an hour this morning about Netflix. It's like, there's some specific reasons why they're crashing right now. And it has a lot to do with the way they set up their company. It has to do with a lot, the way they're financed and their debt structure and things that are beyond the scope of like, the world is finally changing. I, I think like consumers by and large, and this is one of the big issues we're facing. And I'm okay being super honest about it. Consumers by and large, like at the end of their day, they just want to sit in front of their television and watch something that's great. And I don't think that's going to necessarily change. It's just that the world has opened up to all sorts of alt entertainment besides high-end TV. And when you look at things like TikTok and YouTube and Twitch and the number of hours that are spent in these spaces and the struggles that those creators go through, I mean, to be honest, like we're thinking... At first, a lot more about those people who, many of whom either struggle to monetize or if they're able to monetize, they like literally cannot stop posting because the algorithm, their livelihoods will go away and people burn out and people have panic attacks. And those sorts of creators are kind of like where we're focused right now. There is a, a segment of the film industry that I actually work on day to day, which are kind of smaller indie films, indie documentaries. It's a small demo, but if anybody is hurting the most, it's actually those folks because their stuff is so incredibly expensive to make and the distribution options are so incredibly limited. So like I would say, in addition to the shorter form creators, like we're certainly looking at indie filmmakers and like Toss and I have both been events and parties and, and just the whole sort of like film three scene is right up in our space like all the time. And so... That's all to say, like, I guess my personal answer to your question about Netflix is I don't think that it signifies this massive consumer rebellion against like streaming platforms. I think what Taza said is right. I think it's just showing that people are open to lots of other ways of consuming content. There's more streaming platforms out here. And with inflation and all the stuff that's going on right now, as people are like turning off, you know, they're going through their bills and saying like, well, well which one of these streaming services am I going to give up? Without bashing Netflix, I think there's a bunch of reasons why people are choosing to give up Netflix first. And just to finish up my diatribe here, like I'm hoping that Blockbuster will be one of the many places that people can come a lot more freely and still enjoy incredible amounts of incredible content. And using that as a segue, how long do you think it's going to take? If you had a prediction crystal ball and 
you can feel free to decline this question, but how long in a rough approximate minimum maximum time frame do you think it'll take for the first content creator to earn their first bit of income through Blockbuster DAO? Whether or not you buy the brand, I know you're going forward the vision. So how long do you think roughly is going to take for the first content creator to get their first income? So two of the other core team members have a platform called Beam, and they were lucky in, in the sense that our core product is going to look very different from Beam, but they have built a lot of the sort of technical pieces that we need. And so from the date we sort of begin building in earnest what we're calling right now the Blockbuster ecosystem, we're aiming for nine months to have like a fully functioning MVP ecosystem. So we're talking end of 2022, beginning of 2023, we're going to be- It's the starting point that, we're, that we can't commit to at the moment because we don't know how yeah. long this discussion with DISH is going to take and, and when exactly we're going to be able to start the building. What sort of response are you getting from content creators right now? I mean, obviously there's an appeal and I'm wondering if you could wrap that up. Like what's the consensus- feedback and input from content creators about getting involved in their own version of streaming that competes on a global stage? I think having talked to the community in Film 3, but also being very familiar with the general content creator space, you know, on Twitch, YouTube, Vimeo, whatnot, they all have completely different ideas of how they want to either A, fundraise for their content, or B, how their community interacts with their content, either financially or on a day-to-day -day general basis. And I think it's important that we don't force creators into a specific algorithm or box that they have to adjust to, which is kind of currently how the algorithms work today, where you have specific times that you can make money, you have to meet certain criteria. And on TikTok specifically, they have a creators club where they will give inside information on where the algorithm's going so that their top creators can stay on top. And those are things that are obviously unfair, but also it's very restrictive in terms of not only the time that they have to take to keep posting to stay active, but also the type of content or the format of content they have to do. And I think a lot of these creators would have a lot more freedom creatively if they had the tools to be able to monetize and scale their businesses as they want to, right? And I think for some reason, the content space doesn't view content as a commodity. It's just this like thing, right? And I, I think we aim to change that. And I think it's important that we do it in a way that's super flexible and dynamic for creators so that they can really be creative with their offerings, with their products, with their fundraising strategy, with their go-to-market strategy, and be able to maximize that for themselves. It's funny, like our exact product vision, like there's no massively new ideas in there. Well, there is one. I will say there's one. We have an organic marketing concept. It's awesome. But like, that's all to say, like, we haven't released the specifics, but in general, the excitement for all the things that Tasa just mentioned is it's so clearly there. There's, there's no question in our mind. It's just like creators these days are entrepreneurial. They want to be able to monetize their work in the way that they want to be able to monetize it. This is actually in our, our product deck. Like I have these two friends that are TikTok creators. They have 7 million followers on TikTok. And on a good year, they make 120 grand between the two of them. And 90% of that money is made from shilling for brands. It has nothing to do with the content they're making. And I've talked to them at length about this. All they want to do is be able to make longer form comedy on YouTube. And they have 20,000 subscribers on YouTube right now. Guess how much they make a year with 20,000 people watching their videos? $1,200 a year they make on YouTube. Yeah. So they can't stop posting on TikTok or else they lose their rent money. They lose their groceries. So they're completely stuck. Whereas if there were a platform where they could market organically and they could build their own monetization scheme using a suite of tools that we offer. I mean, people are selling like 10,000 ape number 5,067 for 0.1 ETH each. You know what I mean? Imagine like a creator with valuable material that people love to watch that just drops an NFT and it gives you access to their content for the next five years. I mean, like the prospects of using this $40 billion NFT boom as a means to monetize video content, it's just unbelievably massive. And the thing that people are leaving 
$1,200 a year on YouTube and they have 20,000 people looking at their every post, it's like a no brainer for people to jump onto a new platform and try something. If we talk about the DAO ecosystem as a whole for a second here, because we almost have to. I mean, what you're describing and what you're doing at Blockbuster DAO with the vision is a evolutionary, if not revolutionary, step in humanity, you could say, in content production for artists and for streaming platforms and for content consumption in general, which touches everywhere and everyone. And we got obviously Grouse buying an NBA team and moving towards it anyways. We got City DAO buying land and potentially changing how, or at least being involved in, in helping the evolution of governance from our current political systems and from just a regular Joe perspective, go into Web3 and actually own land on, on chain. How long do you think, this is a wild prediction, by the way, how long do you think until 1% of our Fortune 1000 companies today are run by a DAO? Are we talking a decade? Are we talking never? Are we talking five years? If you had a prediction, what would you say? Oh my God. So we're talking 10, 10, <laughs> 10 companies out of the, the Fortune 1000. I don't know. Tasa, you have an answer to that question. I think it's almost got to happen. I mean, I I maybe cut you off guard on that one, but like if we fast forward in the future, I mean, you got a 20 year roadmap. In 20 years from now, the landscape of what our economy looks like, based on if we look at the trajectory and how it's evolved in the last 20 years, right? And and how drastically it's it's shifted moving forward into the next 20 years, there's going to be a very different landscape. And to me, I have to draw an assumption that there's a non zero probability that we're going to have at least one, if not more. Fortune 1000 companies that are DAOs. They're just large entities that are generating revenue substantially enough with large enough reach and employee base, you could say, to qualify technically as you know, Fortune 1000 or, or Fortune 100 or, or even more. I guess I answer it with another question, which is what is the DAO going to look like in that amount of time? Because I believe that the DAO is an ideal that can be realized at the moment with something like Uniswap, you know, where there's a protocol actually in the middle of it running everything. I think the reason I joined CityDAO is because I believe that CityDAO strives for the most decentralization possible when there's no protocol in the middle of it, when it's not a true autonomous organization, when it's interacting with the real world. And already at CityDAO, as you can attest to, I mean, Reigns is like, we're finding that the purity of decentralization is impossible. Like, it's impossible. Like, there has to be some central body, and that body can be democratically elected. It is in CityDAO right now. There has to be some central body helping like grease the gears. Now, when you get into creativity and entertainment, and this is not what we're doing at Blockbuster, but especially when you're talking about decentralized production, I think that it becomes even more restrictive. I'm sorry, but one thing I'm 100% positive about is 10,000 people cannot get together and make a good movie. It's impossible. You need to have a few people at the center of it who have a vision for these things. And so this is all to say that like, I believe that yes, gigantic companies will be run by DAOs, but I also believe that what we call a DAO now, which is this pretty idyllic picture of decentralization is going to change quite drastically as the space evolves. I would also say that it might not even be imperative that the Fortune 1000 companies are DAOs, but I would guarantee you in the next decade, a large section of them or some of them will be using decentralized tools in some capacity for whether it's their product or in their organization, whether it's payroll or insurance, or it could be a number of things. But I think there are decentralized tools that centralized companies can still use, right? And that might even be valid today where some of them might be using those things. But I think there's a lot of road left for DAOs to really figure out to get there. Long way to go, man. Long way to go. Yeah. But we're going there. And so, yeah, I, th- I think about it sometimes. I'm inspired when I look at CityDAO to ask this question because there's essentially staff. Like CityDAO has staff with paid wages, you could say. I mean, it's not technically staff. And let's obviously rewind the legalities of this. Contractors, uh, whatever legal classification there is, there is money flowing from the DAO to pay for people's time and efforts, which leads to the next step of people essentially quitting their I'm waving my hands in the in the air here, this quote unquote real life job to go work for a DAO. We have people making real money working for a DAO instead of working for a traditional business. And this phenomenon happened when people started working for crypto projects and crypto related projects. And now it's happening in the DAO space. I mean, because in some ways you could look at a lot of crypto projects as traditional businesses that are entering the crypto world. Not always the case, but typically more often than not. 
Now, a DAO is a different structure altogether. So a DAO that's raising money and being able to pay people to work for them and, and dedicate brain power to the forwarding and the betterment of that DAO is like building a team of salary or contractor people, however we look at it. And that City DAO has whatever it is, 10, 15 people that are essentially making revenue now that's paying their mortgage and paying their food by contributing to the DAO. And they can be voted in or out technically at any time. It raises this vision, if we carry this forward for the next X amount of time, that there could be hundreds and then there could be thousands amongst hundreds and thousands of different DAOs as well. And we can have a workforce shifting from traditional business into the DAO ecosystem. And that's what leads me to that question of how long do we think it's going to take before someone has to make a decision coming out of college? Am I going to go work for a traditional business or am I going to go work for a DAO? And if I'm going to work for a DAO, what are my venues and what's my recruitment strategy for them? And how do I contact the right HR person that will match me with the right DAO that compares with the skill set I learned coming out of school? Have you guys thought about some of that stuff? I mean, I kind of go on weird tangents sometimes, but that's what leads me to it. I see this new era opening up of style of of employment. And I wonder what that means sometimes for the world, you could say. I mean... I'll say I've thought a lot about it. I happen to be one of these people that cityed out so-called employees. Uh, <laughs> and that's because, <laughs> you know, there's a space where I thought I could add value and I proposed it and everybody went for it. And now it seems to be going quite well. But the thing is, you know, for me, it's a very part-time thing. The worry is the election part, right? It's hard when we say, okay, well, you're the facilitator of, of the Grants Guild, but you're up for election every three months. That's the way we've set it up. I do have a mortgage to pay. So like that can't replace my IRL job yet, right? And we discussed this at length in mission guild calls and 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 we were setting up this guild system. It's like, where is the right line between decentralization and bringing in talent by allowing some form of commitment to that talent? And I don't know, the, the more you commit to a certain person within a DAO, the less decentralized it is, right? It's like, it's these counter forces working against each other. So I would say with CityDAO right now, it's part of the experiment. And I think we have managed to attract like really great people. But I would say in my experience, like most of those people are still hanging on to their so-called day jobs because it doesn't feel sure enough if you can be voted out every few months. That's been my own experience with that particular issue. When I went to Dow Denver, one of the statistics that stood out to me was that 80% of contributors in DAOs today are unpaid. And I think that will definitely have to be a big statistic to change over time where I think a lot of people are contributing, participating, and doing work or some sort of hope to be able to be rewarded with future whitelist spots or whatever it might be. And I think along the point that Gugs made, it does help to be able to recruit and keep talent long-term outside of just contract work. My point being that we kind of skipped a step when we go from corporate America to DAOs. And as much as I love DAOs and I think the ideal of them, there is an answer in the middle there called cooperatives in which the employees of a somewhat centralized organization are able to give voting power to its employees. So if you're an employee, you hold voting power at the board of directors. The employees share a seat or multiple seats alongside the board of directors. They make important decisions alongside the executive group. And I think that is also an interesting opportunity that for some reason in the US isn't very popular. But I think for some companies, depending on the level of execution needed or the level of scope that that company might be, a cooperative is also a good opportunity, at least before maybe these Fortune 1000 companies become DAOs. We may even see a cooperative that's on-chain. Memories, I just want to go back to the, the question you're asking too, because you got my brain spinning where you're like, oh, W2 employment, there's an illusion of stability, but really, I mean, for me, at least it's at will and I could be fired at any moment. And like, is that necessarily better than being democratically elected and being able to say to a community, let me do my job, let me do it well. It, it's like, there's a lot more trust in yourself almost when you're elected to the position. And if you have faith that you can do your job well and do right by the community, maybe in fact, that is even more stable. And I never really thought of it that way. That's a really interesting point. Yeah, because in my past life, you could say I had a construction company and there was 60 people on my staff and they certainly believed that they had job stability for the rest of their lives. And it was important for me to nurture that belief, right? And as long as they did good work, I would always nurture that belief. But the reality is, and any of them that are my personal friends that have carried forward, they might hate me for this. But the truth is, 
any one of them could have been fired at any day for anything that they really screwed up on. And that's the reality of being a business owner in a top-down hierarchical traditional sense. I have to look at the team and we're only as strong as our weakest link. And all the guys that I've had to fire, for lack of a better word, over the, the ages, and we're talking, you know, hundreds of people that come in and out of the doors over that decade. In many cases, I can tell you exactly what day I decided they were going to be fired. And it might have taken a week or a month or six months or even a year for them to actually be out the door. But there are moments in time that occurred where the decision was made, they're fired, and between now and the time that they go is a illusion that they live that they think that they're safe. Not all of them have that. Some of them know that there's something wrong. I mean, any smart person that does a huge, complete violation of core values or theft or any of that kind of stuff must have a certain part of their conscience that's aware that something's bad going to come up and they're probably at risk. But at the end of the day, that illusion of stability is super important for any traditional company to essentially give, unless you're in the direct sales commission realm where you want to have people on the edge of their seats and fearing and always hungry and push and push. Maybe in those instances, it's better to not have that illusion of stability. But when you mentioned that every three months, there's a vote that's done to keep the position, to me, I, I think that actually might even be better. Because if someone pissed me off in my old company in a serious way, they're not going to change my mind. But at least here in a DAO, you have the opportunity of persuading a majority of a N number of total people to at least appease a general consensus to keep your job. So in some ways, I would almost suggest that a DAO and going up for election might even be a little bit more stable than a traditional job. But anyways, I'm going on a rant there. I'm glad for your rant. You're kind of blowing my mind. Like I, I just never thought about it in those terms. And I think you're right. It puts the power in the employee or contractor, whatever you want to call it, in the person's, the individual's hands without that individual. Like in, in the traditional world, that individual would need to be the proprietor of the organization to be able to have that power over their own career. And in this sort of more democratic system, the individual still holds the power, unlike in a centralized company where they really hold none. So cool, man. That's awesome. <laughs> Do you think in like terms of, I don't, I don't mean to play a devil's advocate, but I guess in like the electoral system, how much of your time do you think you'd feel like you need to play quote unquote politics to be reelected or have to like spend your time to be for those three month cycles on making sure that you're retaining your job or you're retaining your security? Or does that really equate to doing maybe a review cycle? in a top-down hierarchy with like your manager or your manager's manager, or in this case, you'd be doing a review cycle with your employees. Do you think that would be the same? Or do you think there's more pressure in an electorate system to be reelected? And do you think that takes time away from doing the job that you want to do? I think this is going to be one of the tests on democracy that DAOs are going to ultimately and are currently dealing with. I mean, Gugs, I mean, you haven't come up for re-election and this show hasn't come up for re-election and I could be voted off. Right. And that's a reality that I have to deal with as well. I love doing this show. It's fantastic. It makes me feel good. It gets me engaged and pumped. I get jazzed about this stuff. And when I go up for re-election or, or at any point, really, someone could say, hey, I don't like Eric's haircut anymore. He's out. Or Mean Brains is a stupid name. He's out. And then if they get enough political power behind it, I could be gone and I have to live with that too. So this really will be a test of democracy. Is it going to get over-politicized and we're going to end up in an awkward position like trying to become president of the United States or what Trudeau is going through right now? I mean, I mean, Trudeau said a swear word. Who, who, who the fuck cares, man? But it's huge news right now in Canada. It's huge news that Trudeau said the F-bomb, right? And this is madness because it has nothing to do with leadership and executing on a proper vision. And I'm not pro-Trudeau either. And I don't mean to get political here, but to talk about an F-bomb is completely irrelevant from the core reasons that I don't support Trudeau in his leadership capacity. But that's what people are talking about now. It's completely politicized and opinionated and has nothing to do, in many cases, with the reality. And I'd like to believe that reality is going to trump and that this test on democracy is going to bring out the true nature of humanity, which I believe is a good place and productive-based and creative-based. And if I can succeed in delivering a good show to the people that are listening right now, then I'm going to be voted back in and I don't have to be worried about it. And Gugs, if you continue doing the good work that you're doing, both the Blockbuster DAO and City DAO, that you can rely on that and bank on it and know that you have that stability. Now, the other component is communication. In my opinion, I'm going on my own rant here, but communication is about letting people know what goes into the work you did. What did you do? How did you do it? What were the challenges you had to overcome that no one knows about? What were your sleepless nights and the weird stuff that you had to deal with in the back end? Maybe a Discord hack. <laughs> Not that anyone's dealt with that before. 
But how did you get through that stuff? And why does that represent value? So communication is so important right now, specifically in a digital world where we're not face to face. I don't see your guys's face because this is an anonymous world. And many people are, are the same way. They can't see my facial expressions. They don't see me in the office when I show up in the morning, all frazzled because I was up all night dealing with stuff. They don't know that. So how are we going to communicate our successes and our challenges? And how are we going to ask for help in a digital world where we don't have that emotional connection in a way that still inspires confidence to keep moving forward? And if there's any example to draw from history, I think about Socrates knows all too well of how democracy can turn against you really, really quickly. And anyone that hasn't studied the story of Socrates and going through and, and you know what happened to him in the ancient Greek world in context and how it represents and maybe is a warning signal for democracy, definitely Google that. Check it out. Maybe I'll end rant there because I know we're way over time and I, and I can talk forever, but I want to make sure you guys, great. you know, make your next meetings and stuff. <laughs> no, it's super interesting. The whole digital aspect of it is really interesting too. Like my brother started and left a job during the pandemic. And one of the things he was talking about was how easy it was to leave that job versus every other job that he left because he never had drinks with those people. He never knew about their families. He never, you know, like the personal connections that you make in an office are completely gone. You don't have those emotional connections. So it is easy to sort of be a digital entity that does things and, and that's it. And nobody's connected to you. So yeah, if you're to like instill confidence in a gigantic community in your own abilities, you need to be extra communicative about who you are and what you're doing. And, and how does that fit in with, all, with the anonymous thing? There's no answers. I, the things you're talking about are, are, are all very interesting. And personally, I'm just kind of down for the experiment. That's one of the reasons I'm in City Dad because I love the experimental outlook. And, and I think the whole group acknowledges the novelness of the space we're playing in and, and kind of let's see how it all works out. We're all scientists, man. We're all just here experimenting. I mean, everyone is. There's almost like a missing E at the end of DAO, you know, decentralized autonomous organization experiment. <laughs> yeah. And with Blockbuster, we further that experiment to ask, can we bring not only a legacy brand, but frankly, like a, a gigantic public company along for the ride? Will they go for it? I mean, that's a lot of what we're discussing with them right now. Is that possible? How does that look? And that's incredibly exciting too. It's like, if we're able to come to some sort of terms with, with Dish about the Blockbuster brand, we will have done something for the first time full stop, which is entered into a partnership with a major company who's willing to take one of their assets and throw it to the wind, <laughs> like throw it to the community, you know, and see what happens. And part of that is not making them believe it's, it's finding a way for them to be sure that it's going to be profitable for them, right? Because they have a board and shareholders to answer to. Like, even if this all ended tomorrow, which I don't think it will, but if it did, it's just been an incredible exploration. And yeah, just look forward to continuing that in, in every possible way. Well, one way or another, looking back as scientists go and experimenters go, going all the way back to, and I might butcher the name here, but Wilhelm Röntgen inventing the x-ray and all the benefit it brings into humanity, if I remember correctly, also died from the radiation exposure. Or maybe, sorry, it was uh, Clarence Daly. Sorry, it, it, maybe I'm wrong about that. But Clarence Daly just being such a uh, contributor to the concept of x-rays, which is parallel to developing dynamite and the concept of the Nobel Prize in and of itself. Developing dynamite that's used to advance humanity also gets used for bad and, and for gunpowder and for violence and going across into splitting a nuclear atom and harnessing the energy in there for good, but also accidentally creating an atom bomb. And once the cat's out of the bag, there's no putting it back in and DAOs are out of the bag. And now we're going to find out in a real sense if we're going to end up as Socrates or if we're going to end up as leaders of a, of a forefronted new world. And I think that this really comes down to the essence and spirit of humanity. And can us as humans, can we shine? This is our moment to shine. The world needs us. The, the earth needs us. The environment needs us. We need each other. And Going back to WAGME, I think DAOs are a representation of the essence behind WAGME. We're all here together. We're all going to make it. And on that note, we're all going to make it. I'm going to wrap up there with the City DAO pod. Tessa and Gugs, do you have any final comments here before I, uh, I do my dramatic exit? <laughs> no, just thank you so much for the conversation. And I so enjoyed this and I, I just really appreciate it. And I'm so excited to reconnect soon and we can move forward that world together. Me too. I'm glad that we're here. I'm glad we got this dialogue. I hope that we all keep talking, stay connected. And anyone who's listening right now, definitely check out Blockbuster DAO Discord. You're going to want to see this evolve. You're going to want to see the creative process that they're putting behind this harnessing of a community and this enabling and unleashing of a community to a common vision. Check out the Blockbuster DAO website and their Discord and 
Follow them on Twitter. Also check out the CityDAO Twitter. Ping me as well on Twitter. I'm Mean Brains there. Love these conversations. If you have any comments or suggestions, jump on in the conversation. Don't sit on the sidelines. Get involved. And we will see you next time on the CityDAO pod. For now, bye-bye. Bye-bye.